Worldview uh, is, is the comprehensive perception of reality, right? It's, we try to figure out how humanity relates to the rest of the world. And every worldview has to answer three fundamental questions. One is, how are things supposed to be? What's the ideal state? And secondly, what is the main problem with the way things are? And thirdly, what is the solution and how can it be reached? For example, Plato and much of Greek thought thought that the main problem with the world was the body, the material things. And so they encouraged philosophy and the cultivation of virtue as a way to transcend the material universe. Right? Karl Marx blames unjust economic systems and class struggles right, for the world's ills. And so to him, the solution was the communist state. Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Romanticists thought that the problem in society was industrialization, uh, technology, and so their solution was to return to art, uh, to nature, and to primitive freedom. And nowadays, what's popular is it's the worldview of the Silicon Valley, who believes that the power of technology, they believe in the power of technology to solve all social ills. But uh, philosopher Leslie Stevenson uh, who teaches in the UK, in his classic introduction to the Western worldviews entitled Seven Theories of Human Nature, makes a really insightful observation that sets Christianity apart from the other worldviews. And he writes, If God has made man for fellowship with himself, and if man has turned away and broken his relationship to God, then only God can forgive man and restore the relationship. So then in locating, the, in locating the fundamental problem of humanity in the relationship with God, the, the disruption of our relationship with God, and offering a solution not by just what we can do to solve it, but what God has done, the initiative he has taken to solve it, Christianity, the Bible, offers an answer that's unique uh, to those three questions. And we found out the answer to the first question, how are things supposed to be, what's the ideal state, last week. We were created for uh, worship which entails our work, and for relationship with God. Uh, and then now today we find here in this passage the answers to the second and third questions. What is the main problem with the way things are, and what is the solution, and how can it be realized? And Genesis 3 teaches us the world is disordered by our sinful rebellion. And we can reorder our worship of God and relationship with the world only by believing in Jesus Christ. And so you're going to talk about that in, in three phases. We'll talk about first the character of sin, then the consequences of sin, and third, the cure for sin. The character, consequences, and the cure. Uh, verse 1 begins ominously. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. I'll explain the, uh, the identity of a serpent more clearly later, but for now, it's important to note that it's an actual serpent. It's a snake. Uh, that's why it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So this is a serpent, a snake that the Lord God had made. And, uh, and this crafty serpent approaches uh, the woman and says to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But there's a, it seems like an innocent question at first, but there's sinister intent there, right? Because what God actually said in chapter 2, 16, 17, was you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But the serpent, you know, shrewdly and subversively phrases that question in a way that makes God look stingy and, you know, stringent, right? 
this, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And as the Bible commentator Gordon Wenham puts it, it's a total travesty of God's original generous permission. He said, here's all of it. You can have it all, except for that one thing. But Satan makes it seem like, no, he told you not to have anything. And so, uh, so not only that, and serpent uses a word for God. So in the, previous to this, all the references to God in chapter 2 refer to God as the Lord God. Uh, so not just the generic God, but the Lord God, referring to his covenant name, which, which points to his relationship, covenant relationship with Adam and Eve. But the serpent surely avoids that reference and simply calls him God, the generic God, the distant God, the creator that doesn't really care about you. That God, he says, so the God, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And in verses 2 to 3, Eve does correct the serpent, but not precisely and not fully. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So first, God had said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but Eve kind of waters down that emphatically generous provision of God. So she doesn't mention that God said, surely eat of every tree. Uh, and, then, and secondly, Eve adapts the serpent's distant way of referring to God. She doesn't say Lord God. She says God. And then third, there is a troubling ambiguity in Eve's summary of God's prohibition. Because she says that God told them not to eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But in chapter 2, verse 9, he told us that both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are in the midst of the garden. So which tree is she talking about? Maybe she thinks God prohibited both of them, everything, all the tree in the garden from them. And then fourth, and this is the most alarming of everything that he changes in this passage she adds an additional element to God's prohibition. It says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God had mentioned nothing about touching the tree. There's no problem with touching the tree. He just said to don't eat of it. But Eve adds to God's law and in doing so actually subtracts from it. And you can see that in saying that, she's already adopting the serpent's attitude, thinking that God's harsh, repressive, stringent. Instead of acknowledging his generosity, oh, this distant God, he says, you can't even touch it. Don't even touch the tree. So you could kind of anticipate what's going to happen after uh, Eve's response. And so having definitely shifted Eve's attention from appreciating God's provision to doubting his provision, he goes directly to impugn God's motives in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God said, you will surely die when you do this. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. And the implication, of course, is that God's, you know, kind of selfish. He's thinking about himself. Maybe even jealous. He he doesn't. He wants to make sure he withholds this good thing from Adam and Eve. So he said, "You know what's really going on, Eve? It's not that 
there's anything bad about eating from this tree. In fact, it's going to make you more like God and open your eyes. God just doesn't want that for you. He's trying to withhold that from you. So let's ask at this point, what exactly is the tree of knowledge, good and evil? Because right? uh, sometimes people think about it as an apple tree. Uh, it doesn't actually say that it's an apple tree. It comes from the Latin word for apple, which means also, it's also the same word for evil. That's why that was used to represent the tree of knowledge, good and evil in the past. Uh, but what, in fact, was a tree? It's, it was it's a poisonous tree. Like, what's going on? Why does it cause death? And why does God forbid it? Uh, and uh, since tree of life, according to verse 22, gives life, right, eternal life, it seems that the tree of knowledge of good and evil should give knowledge of good and evil, right? That would be a fair assumption. Uh, and, and if that's the case, then why does God withhold it from Adam and Eve? Isn't knowledge a good thing? In fact, isn't the whole book of Proverbs pointed to, you know, given to us to discern good from e- good and evil? Isn't it the whole point of the book of Proverbs to pursue knowledge and wisdom? Right? In fact, Psalm 19, 7 to 8 teaches that the law of the Lord makes wise the simple and gives light to the eyes. Sounds a lot like the tree of knowledge, good and evil. So verse 5, serpent promises Eve, your eyes will be opened. And then it says in verse 6 that the woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So they seek that, seek wisdom, seek that. But why doesn't God want this wisdom for Adam and Eve? And the reason is this, right? Because though the Psalms often praise the law of God and the Proverbs enjoin us to pursue his wisdom, the law and the wisdom that we pursue is always in reference to God. It's the wisdom and knowledge that's from God, not knowledge and wisdom that's apart from God. So Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. There's wisdom and knowledge that's God's unique prerogative. And we ought to pursue wisdom and knowledge in submission to Him and not in rebellion against Him. We're supposed to get wisdom and knowledge from Him, not apart from Him. So what Eve's doing here is not just seeking moral knowledge, She's seeking moral autonomy. She wants to know for herself and to decide for herself what is right and wrong, not to get it from the Lord God who created her and designed her to live for him. And it's not that Adam and Eve, if you think about it, didn't know at all what was good and evil, right? I mean, they did know to a degree because the Lord God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's good. You can do that. But then he says specifically of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was not good. And they knew that. They knew in that sense what was good and what was evil, what was right and what was wrong, because they knew what God had told them, what he had told them not to do. But by taking the fruit, and the serpent is cunningly manipulating Eve to be the arbiter of goodness and evil herself, to decide for herself what is good and what is evil. Uh, Jenny once told me about this, actually, and I confirmed it in a Harvard Gazette article. Uh, it was actually written two years ago today uh, about a Harvard, Harvard seal. If you guys have seen it, it's three books. Open books has the word veritas in it, which is the Latin word for truth. Um, and uh, it's, it's not, that's not the original design. The 17th century design that the Puritans had, the first two books were open, but 
The third book was closed. It was, it's, it's, uh, it's, on, it's, it's, it's not open. And it was supposed to suggest that the first two books are God's revelation in Scripture, the Old and the New Testaments. And the third book was supposed to represent the fact that there is knowledge and wisdom that is reserved for God alone. Compared to that profound theological truth, the, the new seal looks a little shallow, doesn't it? Now we think, yeah, we can attain all knowledge for ourselves. Mm. Human autonomy, that's really what's going on with Eve's sin right here. It's the essence of human hubris to think that we can be the masters of our own fate, to think that we can attain all knowledge and be totally autonomous apart from God and live without reference to God. The heart of root of every sin is, that's why it's pride and unbelief. Those two things, they're flips two, two sides of the same coin. Pride and unbelief are at the root of every single sin. It's an act of treason, really. Ultimate rebellion, disbelieving God, and then believing that they can be like God, believing that we can be like God. And notice how the serpent uh, never makes a direct suggestion to Eve. You know, you should really eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't do that. He understands the art of seduction. He simply presents an alternative to God's command and makes it seem like it's more desirable. Sin looks attractive in this picture. You see this in verse 6. Read that with me. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It was good, delightful, desirable. Sin looks attractive, looks good. Vices, sins, have to masquerade as virtues in order to be appealing to us. You see this everywhere. Lust masquerades as love. Selfishness masquerades as self-love or self-esteem. Abuse masquerades as discipline. Slothfulness masquerades as being relaxed and laid back. Pride masquerades as being confident. Selfish ambition masquerades as drive and industriousness. Envy masquerades as righteous indignation. Lack of faith masquerades as reasonableness. And cynicism masquerades as wisdom. Licentiousness masquerades as progressiveness. Fear of man masquerades as humility. Mockery and scorn masquerades as witticism. Gossip masquerades as concern. Permissiveness masquerades as tolerance. Isn't that true? Sin always looks good. It's attractive. We do it because we want to do it. And that's why sin is ultimately so grievous to God. Not only because we're pridefully declaring that we know better than God does, but because we're also faithlessly denying God's generous provision for us, His goodness toward us. We're doing what Eve, exactly what Eve did in, in thinking that God is stringent. He's withholding something from us. He's being wicked toward us. He's not being good and generous toward us. That's why sin's grievous. Because God is, God's heart toward is open. He's generous and good. He gives us all that is good and provides for us. Yet we think of him and we think of the, 
the sins, the, the other things that attract us, and we see those things and say, no, that's better. God's withholding something from me. This is better. That's so grievous to God. He's a generous father. He's our loving creator. And so Eve takes the fruit and eats and gives it also to her husband. And now we come to verses 6 to 8, which is the climactic moment of this whole narrative. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 is just really artistically uh, structured. It's the whole thing is structured as a chiasm or it's symmetrically structured so that there's an element in the beginning that corresponds to an element in the end. And they kind of come together to highlight what's in the middle. So that's what's going on. So first, let me show you. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 17, God plants the Garden of Eden and then brings the tree of life in the midst of it and then forms man from the dust of the ground and then puts him there to work it and keep it. So that's what happens in that first section. And in the corresponding section at the end, it's uh, God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and then so that they may not, not eat from the tree of life. And then instead of working the garden, now Adam must work the ground from which he was taken. And the keeping duty that was given to Adam is now given to the cherubim to keep Adam from coming into the garden. You see all the, all the stuff that happens. So this structure intentionally highlights the consequences of sin. So after that is the second element, chapters 2, verses 18 to 25. It conveys the original ideal of creation. Man rules over the earth and its animals along with the woman, his perfect helpmate. And then the scene ends with how the man and wife will procreate together and how they were naked but unashamed. And then the corresponding section in chapter 3 is verses 14 to 21. That's the fallen reality of creation. There is perpetual enmity now between the woman and the servant and between the man and the woman. And the scene also ends with the mention of procreation. And this time, instead of uh, being naked and unashamed, God clothes Adam and Eve garment of skin, right? So again, that corresponding element, the consequences of sin. And then the the third uh, element is chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, which says that the crafty serpent tempts Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil by saying three things about the tree. And then then later in verses 9 to 13, after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve discover that they are naked. The word naked is a word play on the word crafty. They look exactly the same, almost exactly the same. And then God poses three questions to Adam and Eve. You guys see the structure I'm talking about? And now all this is intended to highlight the element in the middle, which is where we are, verses 6 to 8. Man and woman are standing alone in the middle of the garden, uh, and the woman listens to the serpent, and the man listens to the woman, and God is not listened to by the man, right? So so that's... uh, it points out uh, the hierarchy uh, that gets broken and subverted um, here. And, and it, even the way the, the verses 6 to 8 are phrased uh, really highlight the fact that you know, Adam and Eve, Eve really is usurping uh, you know, God's rights as a creator. So if you look at verse 6 to 8, it's just staccato pace, rapid pace. There's a lot of action. The woman saw, she took and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. And all of these things are things that previously were attributed to God, God's action, right? If you remember in creation, God saw that it was good, right? But now it's the woman that sees that the fruit is good, right? And then it says that, you know, God took the rib from Adam and formed Eve with it. And and then God brought Eve to Adam. But now it says the woman took of the fruit and ate it. 
and then so that the God's taking the rib from the, the Adam, but also God taking the man and putting him in the Garden of Eden. Now it's the woman that takes of the fruit and eats. And then third, the making, right? Up to, up to this point, it was God who had done all the making to provide for the man's need, but now after their sin, they themselves make for themselves loincloths to clothe themselves. God's not providing for them in that scene after sin. It's they have to provide for themselves because they have usurped the Creator's rights. So then, in these three verses, verses six to eight, the Creator's the, the created order, the divinely instituted order in creation, is inverted. It's turned upside down. God, as the Creator of the heavens and the earth, rules over it all, and then He formed man to rule over the earth as His representative. And then he gave Eve to him as his helper and gave him the responsibility to lead her and to represent her. And then together men and women were to rule over the earth, which included all the animals, right? So the creational order was God, man, woman, animals. But in verses 6 to 8, the woman listens to the serpent, which she's supposed to rule over. And the man listens to the woman whom he's supposed to lead and take responsibility for. And then they both together disobey and rebel against God. So the whole thing is inverted. And notice in verse 6, it says, She gave some to her husband who was with her, right? Adam's there all along, right? So people think sometimes, oh, it's Eve's fault. She's the one that took it. Adam's right there. And you know what? He's the one that heard God's command to not take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't there. He is the one that God gave the charge to take responsibility for his wife. Instead, he is, you know, classically passive, just letting the woman do what she wants and just following her lead, forsaking his responsibility and sins against God. And what happens? Now we turn to the consequences of sin. Verse 7 to 8. Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened. Now, this part, the serpent got right, right. But if the devil tells you the truth, it's always a half truth intended to deceive, right? So their eyes were opened, but instead of gaining great knowledge and wisdom, the rest of the verse says that they knew they were naked. That's ironic. It's really uh, tragic because I told you about the wordplay between crafty and naked. Wow, this great knowledge you gained from following the crafty serpent, you discover that you're naked. That's it. Now, verse 8 continues, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So not only are Adam and Eve ashamed of their own nakedness with each other, now they're hiding from the Lord God, their creator also. Now, instead of intimacy and complete openness that they used to enjoy, now there's fear and shame in humanity. And isn't it interesting that human beings are the only creatures of the world that wear clothes. Animals don't wear clothes. Parallel wears clothes only because Ray and Carolyn put it on, right? (laughs) It's because of the shame that we experience due to sin, due to our loss of innocence. Now, that doesn't mean that we should embrace our primal nakedness and then go skinny dipping somewhere, right? To return to Eden, you know, Eden's bliss, you know, the immodest exposure and public nudity are acts of denial and defiance of the moral reality that we are fallen from where we were. 
that something is wrong in this world. So every time we put on clothes in the morning, you know, it's a reminder for us that we are sinners in need of God's gracious covering. That's the real purpose of clothes. So when God comes, it is said in verse 8, that he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the word translated here as cool uh, is the same word translated spirit or wind or breath elsewhere. So the wind of the day, the breath of the day, it's referring to the cool wind in the early evening that drives away this, the heat of the day, right? So it's that time of day, and God is in the garden. And, and the wind is because it's referenced off of the Spirit, right? So just like in Genesis 1 to 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So just as the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in the act of creation, now in God's act of redemption, the Spirit of God is also in the garden looking for his covenant subjects. And once again, the narrative restores God's name. It's not God anymore. It's Lord God again. Because the Lord God has come for a reckoning to address the subjects who have rebelled against him. And so naturally they hide, but of course, it's God. You can't hide from him. He asks him, verse 9, a rhetorical question, really, where are you? And implicit within the question is, why are you hiding from me? And they respond, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's the... it's such an illuminating tale just because you see the classic human response to you know, wrongdoing and guilt and all throughout this, right? Because that's a classic tactic, right? He's basically avoiding eye contact and diverting attention. He's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm naked. That's why I hid. But that's not the point, right? I mean, what God knows what's going on. So he asks, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then another classic defense mechanism, blame shifting, I mean, you guys laughed out loud because it really is funny what happens. The man said, the woman whom you gave me, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. I mean, he's not just blaming his wife. He's accusing God, the woman you gave me. You thought it was a grand old idea. Oh, man, that was a mistake. (laughs) And so Eve was designed to be Adam's helper instead of helping hinder him. And so and, and Adam, who's not supposed to take responsibility for Eve and to represent her, just abdicates completely and blames her, lays all the responsibility on her. And then the woman follows suit by shifting her blame as well. Verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent, mind you, according to verse 1, the Lord God had made. The serpent you made. So the peace and harmony that characterized the Garden of Eden is now shattered. Sin has alienated man from God and woman from man and animals from humanity. And notice how the Lord God comes to reestablish that created order. Even though the woman was the leading protagonist, in the preceding narrative, he first comes to man because he's holding him responsible because he had appointed him as head. That's why in Romans 5, it teaches that sin and death enter humanity through Adam, not Eve, because Adam was the federal head, the representative head in his marriage and of humanity at large. And then after addressing Adam, that God addresses Eve. 
And then interestingly, God doesn't even give the serpent a chance to speak. Right? Though the serpent sought to to be the man's superior and advisor, God doesn't even deign to speak to him because Adam and Eve, not the serpent, are his covenant subjects created in his image. And he holds them responsible. And then God utters a series of uh, curses over creation as consequences of sin. And this is tragic because if you remember from Genesis 1, after each successive act of God's creation, what does he do? He blesses. And now because of sin, he curses his creation. Verses 14, read with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, uh, serpent was more crafty, uh, but now he is more cursed than all the beasts of the field. And Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 describe that animals that go on their belly are detestable and unfit for consumption and, and unfit to be offered for sacrifice. And so here the serpent is cursed to go on its belly. In fact, the serpent violates all the normal classifications of animals according to the Old Testament. It doesn't fit neatly into any of the God's created categories. It swarms and it rises, and so it makes it the perfect kind of a symbol of everything that is anti-God, anti-order of creation. So that's why the serpent, I think, is so fitting. It's used here. So this is, and, and the, the punishment is true on both literal and figurative levels, right? Because literally the serpent slithers on the ground, on the dust of the earth, so it's really eating dust all day long. But more importantly, figuratively, uh, eating dust is, is, represents abject humiliation, complete humiliation. That's what you do to your enemies after you conquer them, if you look at the Old Testament. See, Psalm 72, 9, Solomon writes that God's enemies will lick the dust. So the serpent then will face ultimate humiliation and defeat. That's what that punishment implies. And God's curse continues in verse 25. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'll explain that the theological importance of this later, uh, but for now, this is literally true. The curse is still very true. I read earlier this year, I think it was in January, in the Washington Post, they ran a story about how Florida is losing its battle against snakes. Uh, the Everglades are being over, you know, just overrun by uh, Burmese pythons. Uh, they're destroying the wildlife. In fact, they're driving some of them near extinction, and so they had to hire special snake hunters from India to come over and find them. So, and they're still, it's still a losing battle. This is still going on. Women, the, 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 their offspring, humanity versus snakes, still going on. And, of course, the favorite way to kill a snake is to smash the head, right? I mean, that's still the, the, the go to, that's, that, that's what's in view here. And then God turns to the woman in verse 16 and says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, and notice how merciful God is here. I, I never noticed this until I was pre- uh, preparing for this sermon this week. Is that God, he curses his creation, but he never curses his, uh, his man and a woman. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses the serpent. And he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse man and a woman. Because they're still his covenant people, because he still loves them, right? 
what happens instead is that their spheres are disrupted. Their responsibilities are now going to come with more difficulty and pain. Pain is the word that's used to describe them. But curse is not used with them. It's only used with the serpent and the ground. And here, God addresses the woman's childbearing and later the man's work, not because the two spheres never overlap or because they ought to be strictly separate, but because they are the woman and the man's primary spheres. The woman's primary orientation is toward home and toward her children. Note well that here, childbearing itself is not a curse. There's not pain in childbearing, but childbearing is not a curse. And pain of childbearing before epidural was one of the bitterest pains known to humanity. Frequently led to death. And if you look at Genesis 2.18 and 2.23-24, being a man's helper and the mother of children constitute a unique role of woman. And that's why it's highlighted here and singled out as, as woman's sphere. And giving birth to children is, is seen as uh, you know, imitating God as his image bearers. That's why in Genesis 5.3, it says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. Does that sound familiar to you? To procreate, procreation is described in exactly the same terms as God's creation of man and woman in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. And of course, the fact that childbearing is uniquely the woman's prerogative is hardly a striking insight. But many women lose sight of this in a, in a world where gender distinctions are blurred and women are encouraged to do the same things that men do. And the late uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, who is a feminist historian who directed the women's studies department at Emory University, she writes this in one of her books. She says, so long as women bear children, they will not be identical to men, and hence not equal to them. In the end, the best explanation for their economic inequality remains woman's ability to bear children, the inequality that no amount of social policy can erase. Social policy can erase the consequences of that inequality, but it is unlikely to accomplish even that, much until we replace the feminist quest for an illusory equality with compassionate attention to the lives most women actually live. The unique ability of the woman to bear children should be celebrated, not deprecated. And more recently, in a New York Times article, uh, it was Judith... Shulevich, she's also a feminist author, writes, it's entitled How to Fix Feminism. She writes that Hillary Clinton's generation aimed to free women from domestic prisons, but work is a prison too. She writes that most feminist policymakers have often focused on benefits for wage-earning women, but then she asks, what about the women who want to get out of the workplace at least for a while? And then points to the bill that Representative Nita Lowy apparently introduced in New York, which would give Social Security credits to caregivers who left the labor market to cut back on hours, a public nod to the reality that care is work and caregivers merit the same benefits as other workers. Mothering is real work. Mothering is hard work. Mothering is significant work. And this is especially appropriate on Mother's Day. Mothers should be honored not just on Mother's Day, but every day for their invaluable contribution, an irreplaceable contribution to society, and even more importantly, for their irreplaceable contribution to fulfilling God's intention for humanity. 
Having children, being a parent, is uniformly seen as a blessing throughout Scripture. Consider Psalm 127.3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But unfortunately, this is, we have, in our culture, have an ambivalent view of children. On the one hand, most couples still want to have children and are disappointed when their attempts fail. But on the other hand, many couples also delay having children for as long as possible in order to pursue their careers and attain financial stability. Now, there is no strong scriptural case against postponing having children. Sometimes delaying can help a couple to focus on their new relationship, especially during their early, you know, difficult years of marriage for some. But with that said, I can't say that the Bible recommends such a delay either. And we have to examine our hearts to see, if our attitudes to see, if there isn't an unbiblical devaluation of children. And nowadays, even the people who want children often see them as a burden, right? I saw a meme recently, and yes, Steve, I do know what a meme is. Yeah. <laughs> has a drawing of a baby on it, and it reads, Sometimes when I get sad about not having kids, I sleep until noon, don't cook or do laundry for a week, watch everything but cartoons, and buy myself a gift. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, right? But it's also selfish, isn't it? And even childish. Right? Our parents or someone else made all those sacrifices to raise us, but we're not willing to make those sacrifices for our children. So what if we can't sleep until noon? You don't get to watch any of your favorite TV shows, and you have to cook and do laundry all the time. So, that, so what if you have to give up being able to eat out all the time because you have to take care of your kid or to provide for your kid? What if we have to give up personal downtime so that, we have, so that we have time to play with our children? We're raising up another human being made in the image of God. They will either live forever with God or perish without him. Is that not a worthy, weighty task to give ourselves to? Let's not let our children grow up with the impression that they are an inconvenience to us or a nuisance. This kind of self-giving, sacrificial love should not be foreign to people who follow a crucified Savior who gave his life to save sinners. Perhaps you're a single woman or, or married, but for one reason or another is unable to have children. If so, let me encourage you by telling of another way you can fulfill his commission to be fruitful and multiply. Because in Matthew 12, 49 to 50, Jesus says, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's teaching the importance of the family of God, which will outlast the biological family. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2, Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, and he's speaking to people in the church, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Within the spiritual family of God, the church, there are numerous opportunities for all the women to be mothers, to function as spiritual mothers, and to, to, to lead people to faith, to repentance and belief, and in doing so, bear spiritual children. That's kind of a Mother's Day aside. It was a little bit long uh, aside. But now, getting back to verse 16, in the the second half of what God tells a woman, it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
it's not immediately apparent what this verse means, but it becomes clear if you compare it to a very uh, uh, close parallel in Genesis 4-7, where God tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Right? So same pair of words, desire and rule. And they can, so we, that helps us to understand it. So once again, the word desire is contrasted with rule, so it seems to be a desire to, to have, to control, to take possession of. So the sin's desire is, is to have its way with Cain. And, but Cain must master it, must rule over it. And here, here, God declares that the wife's desire will be to have her way with her husband, to, to rule over her, to control. But instead, the husband will rule over her. And the word rule here means to lord it over someone, to dominate someone. It's a corruption of the husband's God-given call to headship, to represent and take responsibility for his wife. So instead, the husband will be tempted to make idol a power and to abuse and rule over his wife. And the histories and literatures of every culture and every time is littered with examples of male domination and abuse of women. This pronouncement is all too true. And lastly, God turns to Adam in verse 17. Sorry, it sounds so hopeless, guys. The hope is coming at the end. (laughs) Lastly, God turns to Adam in verse 17. He says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. For the woman, there's now pain in childbearing, and for the man, now there's pain in groundworking. And the word listen in Hebrew has the same nuance as the word for obey. So here, again, is God's indictment of Adam. He ought to have represented Eve and taken responsibility for her, but instead he passively obeyed her. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the reason why work is work. No matter what kind of work you do, work is tough. Right? And there are days when you don't want to work. And I know this empirically because I have the best job in the world. And there are still days when I don't want to work. That's why the mantra to do what you love and you will never work a day in your life is naive and misleading. It's really an ideological tool of capitalism to exploit laborers. When you recognize work as work, you could put appropriate boundaries on it, protect yourself so that you have time personal, for personal uh, things and for family things. But when you think of work as not work, then it just bleeds over all of your life. It runs your life. The biblical perspective on work is unparalleled in its balance. On the one hand, work is not a curse, So Adam was placed in the garden to work it before the fall of humanity. So we shouldn't think of work as something to avoid or escape. In fact, it it confers dignity. When we work, we're imitating God who works, who created the world. But on the other hand, work is cursed. 
It's not a curse, but it is cursed. So we shouldn't naively think that it's all going to be roses when we pursue our work. There's pain involved, setbacks, disappointments, difficulties with every type of work. And that's not the worst of the punishments. And by the way, I mentioned to you last week a couple of books uh, that deal with these chapters covered in chapter 2 and 3. We bought some copies uh, so that if you guys are really interested and want to read it, you could uh, grab one. Uh, if there's not enough for you at the end, you could uh, borrow it <laughs> from someone in the church or, or buy it yourself uh, as well. And uh, so th- that's not the worst of the punishment. It says in verses 22 to 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're expelled. Uh, banished from the Garden of Eden. They thought they would become like God in the full sense, but instead they just gained knowledge of good and evil, which separates and alienates them from God further. And God banishes them, and this is an act of grace. He says, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Because if he reaches out for the tree of life and eats it in his state of alienation from God, he will be in forever a state of rebellion and alienation from God because there will be no life to seek. So God banishes him because there can only be life in him. With every death, every page in the obituary reminder that something is amiss, that we need God, that only he can give us eternal life. But wait, didn't God say, though, that on the day they eat of it, they will die? How come they don't die? (laughs) Maybe Satan was telling the truth and God was not telling the truth. Of course, that's not the case. Um, And Adam will live to a ripe old age of 930 years, according to Genesis 5.5. But the formula, you shall not do something, for you shall surely die, is, is the formula for divine threats in the Old Testament. So it's really a, a sentencing. It's a legal sentencing. So if that's what's in view, then it means that the day they eat of it, they will be sentenced to death, consigned to death, and that is exactly what happens. Right? God says to Adam in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Right? Dust, the ground, is, a, is all, again a wordplay. The word Adam comes from the word Hebrew word for ground. So the ground is, the man was formed from the ground, and then he was called to cultivate the ground, and then when he dies he will return to the ground. The ground, the dirt, it's his cradle, it's his work, it's his grave. And so while the physical death doesn't come until later, the sentence comes, and the spiritual death comes immediately. As I mentioned last week, the Garden of Eden is a type of the future temple. I mentioned that to you guys, right? It re- represents the fullness of God's presence and unbroken communion with him. And that's why the cherubim now guards the entrance, and later the cherubim guards the Lord's temple, the inner sanctuary as well. 
And when Adam and Eve then, when they are banned from the temple of Eden, they're being banished from the presence of God. God, who is a source of all life, and they are banned. They are, they're severed from his presence. And because only in communion with him we can have true life, eternal life. That's why Romans 5 speaks of condemnation and separation from God as death that entered humanity. And an entailment of that spiritual death is physical death, which 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. Physical death is a symptom of spiritual death. And all the genealogies throughout the book of Genesis, they're there to bear witness to this truth. Genesis 5.5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Genesis 5.8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Genesis 9.29, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Everyone dies in the book of Genesis. Satan didn't tell the truth. God did. So then according to Genesis, sin is the main problem of the world that underlies all our problems. You saw how it alienated humanity from God and alienated humanity from themselves, one one another, and it alienated them from the rest of creation. All creation now, it says in Romans, is groaning, Romans 8.22, in the pains of childbirth. The creation is disordered. Something is amiss about the world. And that fearful prospect should make us shudder of being eternally shut out from God's presence, the light of the world. But there is still hope. And we turn to the cure for sin. Verse 21 hints at this. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, I don't think that... The animal skin is given here to Adam and Eve is pointing to the sacrificial system because there's no mention of blood and you don't use a skin in the sacrificial system. But I do see God graciously clothing Adam and Eve, their shame and their nakedness, right, which is a result of sin. And I think it foreshadows how God will eventually cover all our sin and shame. Clothing was one of the most significant markers of social standing in the ancient Near East. Right? And uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, the expression clothe them uh, is used in only two ways. In the first way is a, a king clothing his honored subjects. And secondly, it's of the priests being clothed in their sacred vestments. Right? So when God clothes Adam and Eve here, it's, it's, it looks ahead to those things. And in fact, Moses wrote the, all the, wrote these books uh, wrote the, himself, so he has them in view. God's restoring Adam and Eve in a sense, saying, no, I still have covenant with you. I still have relationship with you. And you are still called to represent me on earth. And Galatians 3.27 later says that we are to put on Christ like a garment, his righteousness. This points to that ultimate reality. Verses 15 and 20 point even more clearly to Christ. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Her description as the mother of all living is, is, recalls the promise of offspring in Genesis 3.15, where God curses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mentioned to you earlier that there is a deeper theological sense to this verse because the serpent, of course, is not just an animal, 
but he represents Satan, the devil. As Revelation 12.9 describes God's decisive victory of Satan, and he says that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He has thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So whether a serpent was actually possessed uh, by Satan here in Genesis 3 or merely personifies Satan, there is sat- satanic influence here. And when we consider this, we can see that chapter 3, verse 15, is, is looking for, ahead to a long struggle between humanity and the forces of Satan, the fight between humanity and sin and evil. And in this pronouncement, the, the humanity has decisive advantage because serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise his head. And the pronoun used is he, right? He's referring to a son. And this may be why, uh, you know, it's, uh, well, this is why in, in throughout Genesis, the genealogists have a prominent role because the, Moses is intentionally tracing the line of the woman uh, to point, you know, to, to say that the offspring is going to eventually lead to that future Messiah. Uh, but not only that, we just went through the Gospel of John. Do you guys remember how uh, Jesus always refers to himself as the Son of Man? And he awkwardly calls his mother woman, right? It's probably a reference to this as well. Right? He is the Son of Man promised who will come to bruise the serpent's head. So Romans 5 summarizes this in a real amazing way. It says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. And then he says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the new and better Adam who fulfills God's intention for humanity. He's the one that succeeds where Adam had failed. Remember John 20, 31. We said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have life in his name. We forfeited our access, humanity did, to the tree of life through sin. And Jesus offers us eternal life through his death on a tree the tree of the cross. And when we turn away from our sins and cling to Jesus Christ for salvation, that's when the Spirit of God indwells and imparts to us eternal life. And those who have the Spirit of God can be assured that after physical death, they will be raised again when Christ returns in the resurrection of the body. That's the hope. We can't solve it any other way. We can't make forge our own path to God. That gate, that entrance to the Garden of Eden was forever shut. If 
you are an unbeliever and if you are a believer, the only way we can seek to restore, to reorder the creation the way God intended it to be, only way God's intention for creation can be fulfilled is, with, is within the gracious provision of God, within the Christ-like love, the community that he forms with the Spirit of God. So the world is disordered by our sinful rebellion and we can reorder our worship of God in relationship with the world only by believing in Jesus Christ. I hope that fills you with gratitude and love for our Savior, that he made the way for us that we could not make ourselves. Let's pray together. God, we are profoundly grateful. Lord, we do shudder at the, sight, at, the, at the prospect of being forever shut out from your presence because you are our generous Father, because you have been the giver of all good gifts. You have been faithful morning after morning, have provided all that we have ever needed. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ made a way for us and we give you all the praise and glory for our salvation. And now help us, Lord, as, as your representatives on earth, as those who have been indwelled by your spirit to, by your grace, live according to your will. In a manner that references you and gives glory to you at every turn, rather than on our own, independently, autonomously. Help us, God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.